0: Welcome and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Maryland's most notorious murders, where the most gruesome, the most bizarre, the most high-profile homicide cases in Maryland are examined and profiled. This season, season four, murder suicide cases are discussed, they're talked about, and they are examined. On this episode, the murder-suicide of Paul Warren Potters is profiled, and the unsolved stabbing murder of 78-year-old Sterling Palmer is profiled and discussed. Now imagine you love someone so much that you can't bear to see them suffer. You know that they are in pain... You know that they're hurting. You know that they're constantly suffering on a daily basis. Their pain is your pain. You, the caregiver, you're devastated. You're completely wiped out physically and emotionally, stressed out from taking care of this person on a daily basis. You're going through a slow death yourself, really. You know, just watching them wither away into somebody that they don't want to be. And it's draining you. It's killing you. It's, it's draining the very life out of you because you're losing the person that you can't bear to be without. And you're losing yourself. In the sad case of Paul Warren Partis, he put a completely different spin on why some people commit, some people decide to kill and then kill themselves. 50-year-old Paul loved and adored his mother dearly. Now, the love between a mother and a son is different than the love that most, you know, that mothers have between their daughters. A mother is a son's first love. The issue here was that Paul's mother was sick. 84-year-old Jean Davis suffered from crippling arthritis and debilitating rheumatism which is a very, very painful disease that attacks the lining of the tissues around your joints and your muscles. People sometimes think that this is a condition that can only affect like your fingers or your hands or whatever, but it can also affect the joints that's in your back and your pelvis. And it's a crippling disease for the elderly, especially. It's, sometimes it can leave you immobile, unable to move, I mean, it's painful to get around, if you can even get around at all. She used to be quite the horsewoman when she was young, but she was not able to get around too well on her own in recent years. She was in good spirits, but she was getting weaker all the time. That's what a longtime friend of, Jane's, of Jean's commented to the Baltimore Sun. Now, Paul and his mother... They traveled from their rural hometown in Virginia to get treatment and surgery at the world-famous John Hopkins Hospital in East Baltimore. John Hopkins Hospital, the biggest employer in the state of Maryland with over 30,000 employees and counting. People from all over the world come to this hospital to get treatment from a number of our world-renowned surgeons or our well-renowned specialists, because it's known, and, this hospital is known and respected for being a leader in its cancer research, its exploratory surgeries, and exclusive treatment procedures performed by some of the best doctors, surgeons, and specialists in the world. Honestly, though, man, if y'all only knew about Hopkins. But anyway. Paul had been on leave from his job as a driver for Metro Access for the past three months and during all that time he took care of his sick mother 24-7. Jean had been in John Hopkins Hospital where she was scheduled to receive surgery on her spine from a Dr. Cohen who was a well-respected orthopedic surgeon who had worked at John Hopkins for about 12 years. Now everybody knows surgery on your back or basically surgery on your spine is no joke. It's no laughing matter, it's not for sissies. And Jean was there to receive spinal compression surgery. This type of surgery is done to relieve or ease up pressure that's on your spine. At any age, this surgery comes with a number of risks already like infection, blood clots, allergic reactions to anesthesia, and or nerve or tissue damage. At Jean's age of 84, the risks were more than doubled. It took Dr. Cohen six long hours to perform Jean's surgery. After the surgery, while Paul waited for his mother to recover in the ICU, nurses did find him to be just a little bit strange, weird even. A few of the nurses even noted in their reports that Although Paul was there every single day for his mother's care, he often did look disheveled. He looked a little dirty and it looked like he was homeless or basically it looked like he had been living out of his car or something. So to help him out, they would offer him some food. They would offer him, you know, access to clean clothes, a place to sleep, all of that. Just trying to help him out a little bit, but he turned it all down. Plus, he stayed irritated and agitated and moody. Everybody is in some some type of mood when their loved one is in the hospital. But Paul was a weird type of moody. For example, he carried a small black satchel type bag with him. And he told everybody, he ordered all the nurses and the doctors in the ICU, that no one, absolutely none of the doctors, nobody was allowed to touch it. Like, at any time, for any reason at all. But when one of the nurses accidentally, well, she bent down to touch it, you know, to pick it up or to move it or something, he zapped out, he lost it, he screamed at her. He snatched the satchel back and told her, you know, for nobody to touch his bag. He was like, look, nobody touched my bag. Realizing that the bag did have some weight to it, The nurse did tell her fellow co-workers that it could be a gun in his bag, but nobody thought nothing of it. They thought that, unfortunately, Paul was just one of the weird ones that came through the hospital from time to time. The nurses and the doctors that were in the ICU were able to calm Paul down just by talking to him and reasoning with him every time he seemed irritated and agitated. But after his mother started doing better the decision was made to transfer her to the eighth floor of the nelson building the eighth floor is where the orthopedic spine trauma and thoracic services are performed but after his mother was moved from icu to the eighth floor in the nelson building paul's mood and his attitude took a turn for the worst according to published reports after the six-hour surgery, Gene was left paralyzed because there were complications. After learning this, Paul was infuriated, and he demanded to know who was the surgeon that performed the operation on his mother. Dr. Cohen, a married father of two young children, had worked, at John, had worked as an orthopedic surgeon at John Hopkins Hospital for over 12 years. Dr Cohen was both well respected and admired and he was both well respected and admired in his field and he was also known at the hospital for always performing magic tricks his wife also worked at the hospital as a nurse as Dr Cohen calmly explained to Paul the complications of what had happened during his mother's surgery he told Paul that although the surgery had left his mother paralyzed and she most likely would never walk again. Dr. Cohen tried his best to assure Paul that his mother wasn't in exactly grave condition. She was actually doing better and would be more mobile after rehab. But Paul wasn't hearing none of it. He wasn't having none of it. I mean, all he could hear was that his mother would never walk again. Maybe this was planned all along, who knows? But on the morning of Thursday, September 16th, 2010, around 11 a.m., as the doctor talked to Paul about Jean's condition, Paul snapped. Witnesses later told reporters that Paul yelled at the doctor, you ruined my mother. Then he pulled out a small caliber handgun from his waistband and shot Dr. Cohen once in the abdomen. Paul's mother had only been out of ICU for a day before he killed and shot her surgeon. After being shot, Dr. Cohen collapsed, and his colleagues immediately focused on treating him. The shooting sent the hospital, the eighth floor, in a panic, and while some nurses and doctors focused on treating Dr. Cohen, others ran for cover. Paul ran into his mother's room, room 873. A sitter had been sitting in the room with his mother, but once she heard the shot, all the commotion, and saw the gun in Paul's hand, she bolted out of the room and slammed the door behind her. Somebody had the good sense to barricade and lock him in the room from the outside so he couldn't come back out. Meanwhile, the whole eighth floor of the Nelson building was evacuated. SWAT was called and showed up with battering rams snipers were put on a building across the street from the hospital just in case paul decided to go on some wild shooting spree traffic outside was directed away from the hospital screwing up traffic in that area even more than it already is patients and staff who weren't ordered to evacuate security and law enforcement had to basically they had to mark that door with a big x and tape just to let the snipers who were positioned across the street just to let them know that the room was safe and had been cleared the hospital was put on lockdown i mean some employers of the hospital were were ordered to stay behind closed doors and away from windows they were stuck outside for hours without their cell phones without their purses medication anything as they were ordered to evacuate and leave the hospital immediately all this preparation and neither law enforcement or SWAT ever got the chance to even talk to Paul or even negotiate anything with him. In all the chaos, people realized they heard nothing coming from the room that he was in. After two and a half hours of prepping for the worst, investigators detected nothing, no activity coming from the room where Paul was in usually in situations like this a shooter will make demands tell them they want this, they want that they demand you know, action or something you don't just sit there pointless and quiet and when investigators didn't hear from him at all or see any movement they sent in a robot with a camera attached to it to investigate further the camera circled the area and the investigators were able to locate the bodies of both Paul and his mother After they investigated further and entered the room, they found that Jean had been shot once in the back of her head and was still lying in her hospital bed. Paul had placed the same gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger, ending his life in this world. Investigators found his body on the floor near his mother's bed. A medical examiner later determined that both had died instantly. And just like that, The two-and-a-half-hour standoff was over. Investigators never got the chance to say a word to Paul, so it's assumed that he shot his mother, then shot himself, probably almost immediately after shooting the doctor. Paul's brother told reporters that his brother didn't have a criminal record and didn't even mess around with guns. He said his brother probably killed their mother because he couldn't handle the stress of seeing his mother in the condition that she was in. I guess he just couldn't bear to see her the way she was. I guess because he thought my mom was suffering because the surgery wasn't successful. And she probably wouldn't be able to walk again. She was a dear, sweet lady. She just wanted to walk around like she did when she was younger. That's what Paul's brother commented to reporters. He loved his mother. That that, that really showed that's what all the neighbors told reporters when they asked about Paul's habits. A doctor who got shot? I mean, he was shot in Hopkins the Hospital, which is supposed to be the best hospital in Maryland. And all the confusion and commotion, he still got rushed off to emergency surgery and survived the shooting. He eventually ended up going back to work at the hospital. Now, this murder-suicide was notorious in Maryland because first off although we have a lot of shootings and killings and you know all of that in Maryland we don't have a lot of them occurring in a hospital a lot of them don't happen and especially not in Hopkins not directly in a hospital and they don't occur usually happen after um, a patient has received treatment although I'm quite sure a lot of people have felt like wanting to shoot doctors or whatever after their treatment Especially when they gave them bad news, we don't usually have a lot um, of homicides or shootings that occur actually in an actual hospital. Um, That's what made this crime a little bit notorious, and especially because, you know, also the murder-suicide aspect of it, where I believe that, I do believe what his brother said, that he couldn't bear to see his mother suffering and he knew that his mother probably would not want to live that way, um, you know, paralyzed. Nobody made him God. He don't have that choice to to do what he did. But it's almost understandable. Um, another thing before I even continue on that part, Hopkins. I mean, Hopkins might look good on paper, you know, and all of that. People, we got a lot of special specialists and this, that, and blah, blah, blah. But I'm, I, I would not say it's one of my top five hospitals that to go to. That's all I'm say about that. But um, that especially the emergency room. But anyway, um, I know the doctor is still traumatized. You know, probably suffering from PTSD from this incident, getting shot in the abdomen, and especially delivering news to a patient something that. He has to continue to do, I'm sure, probably on a daily basis. Um, I feel sorry for the physician, the doctor that was that was involved in this. I really do. I mean, um, because of this shooting, it was reported that Hopkins did change its protocol. They did change its security measures. There, It's inconceivable to think that you're going to put metal detectors in a hospital, especially when it's flooded with nothing but metal. You know the instruments and stuff like that that the doctors and physicians use to treat patients but so you cannot put metal detectors in a hospital and expect to um you, you basically you cannot detect people crazies that come into the hospital so you're gonna doctors and physicians and nurses are gonna have to figure out they came up with another way to be able to detect basically when somebody is about to zap out or somebody's about to commit a crime or who's showing signs of being erratic and irrational and um, basically anxious like paul was showing before he decided to commit this act um it's really this whole case was really sad because um think about it you know if his if his mother was healthy or if the surgery was a success would his mother and Paul would they still be here? Would they? Would this had even happened? Um, and like I said before, how many of us felt like Paul felt like you know taking a doctor out because you they received news that you didn't want to hear, especially about your loved one. I mean, it's it's a real blessing that the doctor survived and was able to go back to work and to do continue to do what he loved to do. But like I said, I'm quite sure he is probably, he and his wife are still affected to this day of the shooting that he could have easily just been, you know, a victim from. Um, I also feel sorry for, um, Paul's, the brother or his family, um, because they lost two people that day, um, his mother and he lost his brother. It's the whole situation was just a sad situation, um, it was unfortunate. It, it was something that possibly could have been prevented. Um, it, it was just, um, a, one of the most, um, shocking crimes that I heard, because like I said, Maryland has a lot of homicides, but very rarely do somebody pop off in a hospital, especially in Hopkins. And especially like that, especially, um, You know, sometimes they will end up shooting like a relative or um, a victim or something like that. But he shot his mother and a doctor. So, and himself. So that's what made this one of Maryland's most notorious homicides. Now, this episode's unsolved homicide is the stabbing murder of 78-year-old Sterling Palmer. Imagine you go to the store without a care in the world. You're gone for 20 minutes max. And when you get back to your house, you find your friend, your soulmate, your husband of 11 years brutally stabbed on the basement floor. In the blink of an eye, your life changed. That's what happened to the wife of 78-year-old Sterling Palmer. On the afternoon of October 8, 2010, Sterling's 71-year-old wife left out of their home in the 2600 block of Edison Highway, close to the Urban Shopping Center. She left to go pick up some lunch. Who knew that while she was gone, somebody, a monster, would come into her home and forever alter the course of the rest of her life? Someone stabbed her husband multiple times and left his body on the basement floor. 911 was called and Sterling was pronounced dead after paramedics and police responded. His wife had known her husband since 1959 before finally marrying him 11 years before he was brutally murdered. Sterling was known to carry up to... $300 in his pants pocket all the time and since his money was missing when he was killed Sterling's friends and family believed he may have known his killer and his killer may have known that he always kept money on him and knew that he freely loaned out money to friends and family whenever they needed it they believed that Sterling unknowingly let his killer in their in his own home on a vigil that was held in front of his home after he was stabbed to death more than 30 of sterling's friends and family members gathered together to remember and honor the former motorman for the number 151 trolley that traveled through gay street many years ago while there they sang songs they talked about memories of sterling They handed out flyers for a $4,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest in his murder, and they prayed. They prayed to God, seeking for answers, seeking justice in this heinous murder of an elderly man. I miss him. He was my best friend. Someone had to have seen something, no matter how small it may be. Please call someone. You don't... You don't know. It may lead to something, his wife commented to reporters for CBS News. Getting a resolution would help the family, especially my aunt, because they've been together for so long, his niece added. A year went by. Nothing. I mean, I know what that feel like. And, And the family suffers through this loss, the holidays are especially brutal, especially for his wife. It's like it just happens, as far as I'm concerned. I will never be right. It's something that won't go away. He'll do anything for anybody, and I just loved him. Some person that was that mad took their anger out on my husband, and they have to pay for it. That's what his wife commented to reporters for the Baltimore Sun. He was just living his life in his own home, minding his own business and someone comes along and acted like a savage," added his daughter. The investigators, they had some good leads at first, but nothing panned out. Plus, even though his money was taken, the investigators are not officially ruling his murder as a result of a robbery. Regardless of the reason of who did what or the motive of what or whatever, this still is a crime that needs to be solved how you how can you live to be 78 years old only to become like the victim of a homicide and be more i mean honestly people come on y'all come on people let's get this one solved i know somebody knows something you know so do the right thing clear your conscience and give this family some peace If anybody has any information at all, no matter how simple, no matter how mediocre it may seem, please call Cold Case Detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also call them at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can also send a text message to 443-902-4824. You can also email them at tips at BaltimorePolice.org Once again, those phone numbers are uh, Cold Case Detectives at 410-396-2100 You can also give them a call at 1-866-7-LOCKUP You can send a text message to 443-2100 902 4824. You can email them at homicide tips, that's T I P S with an S, at baltimorepolice.org. And check this out, y'all. You can remain anonymous, people. I know you're thinking, oh, I gotta go to court, I gotta say this. Not really. Look, most of the times, family members just want to know what happened. Like, instead of just being left in the loop, left in the dark, just, you know, they just basically want to know what happened. So would it it hurt you to, you know, to drop a line or drop a tip about um, a homicide that you know to clear your conscience? I mean, to me, it it, it sounds like it's only right. It's, it's, It's the right thing to do. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, heinous episodes. Also, be sure to check out all of the true crime books that are related to this podcast entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders 1990 through 2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides Volume 1. Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, and the upcoming, soon to be released, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 2009 through 2020. All of these books, as well as my local bestseller, Junkie A True Baltimore Story, are all available on Amazon.com in paperback or as an ebook. For your digital e-reader. Or Amazon Kindle. Be sure to tune in next week. Where another. High profile. Another new high profile. (laughs) Newsworthy. Homicide. In Maryland. Will be discussed. Will be examined. And it will be profiled. On Maryland's. Most notorious murders. This. Has been. A real-life production.